You can have a seat. As you do, would you mind just, uh, again, saying thank you to our worship team? Don't they do well in just leading us in worship? Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them and go to uh, Romans chapter 14. If you don't have one, don't worry. We'll be up on the screen in just a moment. Um, We've been talking about abundant life. And uh, as Pastor Lawrence has been in England, which he's still in England in the UK, uh, traveling and ministering, um, he gave me the unique opportunity to preach twice in a row. So we got to kind of set one up last week and then kind of conclude it this week. Um, So what I'd like to do is um, I'd like to read the passage that we're going to look at, but then then give you a bit of a review. So if you missed last week, no worries. I'm going to try to sum it up very quickly. For all those that are endured last week, you're probably thinking, why did you not give us that version? Um, But I'm not going to give you that. uh, So if you would, if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 14, we're going to begin reading at verse 13 through 17. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am, and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. I just want to say that again. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want to read that again. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's just pray once more. Father, I pray um, again that your word would go deep. We pray that you would bless Pastor Lawrence as he ministers and travels, that you anoint him. Lord, we take a moment and pray for our children right now and D-Kids and D-Kids Junior. May you give them a heart to know you and to walk in your ways. May they know what is true and what is good. Bless those who are serving them now. And Lord, I pray in here, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And I thank you in advance for this, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so quick review from last week. We looked at the abundant life. We're gonna go deeper. We looked at John 10 and how Jesus says there's a thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. But we thought we should probably uh, better understand what that means. So we kind of took a deep dive. And there's been about three questions that we were trying to wrestle with. One is, um, how do you know when you're leading life well? In other words, we have some sort of agency, some sort of responsibility in which we have to lead our lives. How do we know we're leading it in a direction that it will go well? It'd be, again, a miserable thing to wind up 40 years down the road in your life and find out you were were, uh, doing the things that didn't lead to a fruitful life, right? So that'd be number one. Number two, the second question that we looked at is how do you know when life is going well? Right, one is how do you know you're leading a life well? How do you know when life is going well? And then the third question has more to do with affection, and that is what should life feel like when it's going well? What should it feel like when it's going well? And we wrestled with these last week, and then we brought up how Jesus in John 10, when he's talking to them, brings up the issue of authority. 
And his whole argument is really about how he has authority to teach them. And he gives evidence for that all throughout John 10. And we asked a fundamental question that I think is very important. What's the connection between authority and the abundant life? Jesus brings up the issue of having life and life to the fullest in the context of him having authority. And we talked about how we live most of our life, right? What we need is we need to find knowledge, knowledge of reality that we can trust in order to base our life on. And we live mostly in our lives by, by trusting authority to have knowledge. And we do that everywhere, from, from our medical doctors to pharmaceuticals to a mechanic, everywhere. We don't actually know how this car, uh, recently I had an issue with my car. I didn't know exactly what the problem was. I had to trust whether or not the person who had that knowledge or authority was correct or trustworthy. Does this make sense? When we rely on knowledge in a vast uh, um, multiplicity of areas in our life. So it's normal to do that. And Jesus is trying to say, I have the authority to uh, share with you, to teach you about the knowledge of reality that you can base your life on and you can trust. And if you do that, it will lead to a flourishing life, a, a life that's overflowing, a life that's full. And that was the connection between authority and the flourishing life. And then we looked at some common deceptions in our culture. Not in Jesus' culture, but our culture. So we got to take what Jesus is teaching it and how do we apply it to what we're, where we live today. And he talked about these thieves that try to deceive us. And we talked about four common um, deceptions, I think we believe, about how we get to the abundant life in our culture. Do you guys remember those, some of you? Okay, I'll, I'll give you them. You can talk back. This is going to be a long morning, right? It's already probably going to be a long morning, but you know. You may enjoy it more. We talked about four common deceptions. One was find your authentic self. And if you could just discover your authentic self, that will lead to the abundant life, right? And then we asked some questions like what happens when you find your authentic self and your authentic self is selfish? What if it's, um, what if, it's, what if there's, there's aspects of yourself that you don't like? What do you do? We all assume the self will find is going to be good, <laughs> But uh, anybody who's been around long enough knows that's not the case. What do we do if, we're, if, that, if that's a pathway to life? What happens then? Then the net, and second one was follow your dreams. Just follow your dreams. And we talked about what, what about the overwhelming amount of evidence of people who had dreams, followed them, and achieved them, and tell us it still didn't satisfy. The overwhelming evidence of that. Basically, what we're saying when we say follow your dreams is I'm the only true expert on what my skills and desires are that can lead to some sort of goal that if I achieve will be fulfilling to me. And we talked about how that would be a horrible thing to wind up at the end of your life having accomplished your dreams and find out it didn't lead to life. Right? Then we talked about the third thing, be independent. You just be independent. We talked about independence in and of itself has no virtue. The real issue is what do you do with the independence you have, Right? Being independent is like saying, I, I want to do what I want, right? Uh, and honestly, in our culture, in America, where we, we celebrate independence, when people talk about being independent, really what they're talking about is being financially independent. And that is, I have enough resource to then now follow my dreams or to find my authentic self or whatever that might be. And then the last one is we talked about some form of hedonism. That is pleasure. Pursue pleasure. That's really what this life is about. You can find your most fulfilled life by pursuing pleasure. And we talked about what about the fact that um, once you pl uh, satisfy pleasure, it just constantly begins to want more. It's, it's unceasing. What happens to that? It, it's not self-limiting. And then we, we talked about uh, the sexuality, that instead of se our sexuality only being one part of who we are, it's now become one of the most important parts of who we are. 
One of the most defining parts of who we are. And we asked a very serious question. I want to ask it again because I think it's important for us. Can you live an abundantly uh, full and rich life and not fulfill your sexuality? I'm not saying you completely deny it. I'm saying it not be fulfilled. That's what we're trying to answer here. We're talking about how important sexuality is. And I propose the question to you. Do we really think we would tell Mother Teresa, you could have had a little more fulfilled life if you'd have just found someone, settled down, got married, had sex and had children. Would we like to have told Jesus, you did a great job, but you know what, you could have done something a little more fulfilling with your life if you'd have just got married and settled down. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm trying to challenge the way we're seeing the world, and then we, or, or we talked about romance and how that's a part of hedonism in that sense. Now, what I'm trying to say is not that the abundant life doesn't have any of these things. What I'm saying is none of these can be the main aim in which leads to an abundant life, right? It's seek first the kingdom, not seek only. So we have to have our aim right in order to have a fulfilled life. And then we ended with this, and I want to just reiterate it again. What is the cost? What, what, I, what I showed you is that basically these four things all kind of um, dilute down into this idea where the abundant life comes about my personal taste or preference. And that when we say that life or the flourishing life is about my taste or preferences, that has a huge cost to it. And we talked about several of those. The first cost that it has is there's this creeping sense of meaninglessness in our lives. If I, can, if I tell you, G.K. Chesterton, the great um, Catholic apologetic, uh, 100 years ago said it. I shouldn't try to quote him on the fly. That's not a good idea. Uh, he was pretty, com- but he would say, uh, when, you t- when you look at someone and say, choose whatever you want, it's, it's the same thing as saying, I don't care what you choose which is equivalent to saying your choice means nothing to me. That in a sense, if we if we just able to make any choice we want and we're the ones that give value to that choice, give meaning to the choice, then whatever meaning we give can easily be taken away and slowly but surely our choices become meaningless. And there's this creeping sense of arbitrariness to our lives or meaninglessness to our lives. That's a cost when we make taste or preference the pathway to the abundant life. We talked about then what ends up happening is we can't even begin to discern. We no longer have the lenses in order to discern the real meaningful things that are already at work in our lives. That there is things in our life right now that are meaningful and rich that can lead to flourishing. But oftentimes we can't even see them because we don't have the lenses to discern. That's a cost to making taste or preference the pathway of the abundant life. The third cost was we can't listen to the great ancient voices that tell us about life. From Plato to Aristotle to Jesus to Thomas Aquinas to John Calvin. These great voices that have thought long and hard about what is, what is life and how do we find it. We can't even listen to them because it's about our own taste now. And then the last thing is there is a public cost. And that public cost is that we can't have dialogue with each other about really meaningful things in life because it's about taste and we just divulge into a shouting match. We lose the ability to have meaningful conversation about what does really matter in life. And that, what ends up being is we live some disengaged individualism instead of this common humanity that we could share. So that's kind of an overview. Hope that works. Many of you are like, again, I wish you would have just said that yesterday and that took 40 minutes. So let's dive into what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a couple of things. What, um, what's the vision that the Bible gives of the flourishing life? What's the form it takes? And then what's the content? How, what's the substance of this kind of life? So the first thing is the vision. And you see it in this little phrase in Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The first little phrase there, the kingdom of God. 
Now, when the Bible uses the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is a very important phrase. Jesus Christ in four gospels mentions the kingdom of God or the kingdoms of heavens, that's interchangeably. Matthew uses kingdom of heavens because he's talking to a more Jewish audience. The other three use kingdom of God because he's talking, they're trying to talk to a broader audience. They mean the same thing. Jesus mentions the kingdom of God or kingdom of heavens over 115 times in four gospels. Now, to put it in perspective, he mentions the church twice. He mentions being born again once. The kingdom of God, his first sermon, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. His last sermon, after he rose on the grave, he spent 50 days, Acts 1, teaching them, his disciples things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He taught us to seek it first. He taught us to welcome it. He said, it's at hand. It's available. Now there's something in reach that has not priorly been in reach because Jesus is here. He urges us about the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, in a sense, would be God's home. It's the, it's the, um, uh, the realm of God's effective rule. You all have a kingdom, or ladies, a queendom, if you prefer that, right? If you don't think you have a kingdom, uh, ladies, let somebody grab your purse and start going through it. See, if you feel violated, because that falls inside your domain, your kingdom. The kingdom of God is the realm of God's domain where God's will is, what God wants done is done. His, his, the realm of his effective uh, will, if you want to put it that way. And it is, in a sense, um, a, very, a very spiritual thing as well. well. We'll talk about that, but it's very practical. And Jesus announces it. He says it's coming, and it's at hand. And to kind of give you the big picture, the Bible starts with a garden, this cultivated garden. Then we know where there's, they have um, no shame, no fear. They are in relation with God. They have provision and protection and all the rest. And then they fall. Sin enters the world. It goes bad. That's, but that's where the Bible starts is in this cultivated garden. But that's not where the Bible ends. The last picture of restored humanity at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation is not a garden but a city. And this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven that is economically stable, it's culturally rich, it's morally sound, and people will live there and dwell there forever. So it starts with the garden, but ends with the city, this corporate humanity. And that's kind of the effect of the kingdom of God. So let's kind of give a vision of it. It starts with a negative vision. The kingdom of God in the, the Bible gives us this vision of the future um, and a new heaven and new earth in which there is no sin, which there's no death, there's no loss or brokenness, there's no pain or injustice, there's no hate, there's no death or sickness. Can you imagine that? Imagine how you might have to get to know who you are again when you now are living without having sin or brokenness. We might have to get to know each other again. <laughs> You're not the same person. Well, I'm not broken. Oh, okay. Right? That's kind of a negative vision. The positive vision, righteousness dwells there. Peace is there. There's pleasures forevermore. We can enjoy creation. We think that, we think that uh, new heaven and new earth is some like disembodied spirit. Like we're going to be in a cloud-like state, like a, like a Charmin commercial, right? Where we're all just kind of floating around with harps. That's, that's, Platon, that's Plato, not Jesus. Jesus tells us there's a new heaven and new earth where there's animals and there's food, right? I don't want like spiritual food, right? Like Peter Pan where it's all fake food. I want, I want real robust feasts, right? That's what the Bible talks about. And that the real thing that makes the kingdom of God and makes all of this so wonderful is God fully dwells with us forever. That God dwells within us as human beings and God dwells within his creation completely and unhindered. And that makes it beautiful. He dwells with us there. Now, 
the problem with this is you, we access that spiritually. So last week, everybody all right? Yep. All right. So we talked about last week that there's different realms of life. And this is a very complicated idea, but I just want you to, I don't, I'm not trying to bore you, but just stay with me, okay? We got to think about some things, right? I didn't get into Christianity because I just wanted to, you know, please my parents or something. I got into it because I wanted the truth. Either it's true or it's not. And I want the truth. Okay? And I think Jesus has such character that if he wasn't the way, the truth, and the life, he would have told us. And if you don't believe that, it's hard to follow him. Right? So we want to think well about these things. All right? So there's different realms of life. Last week we used the example, a cabbage is alive. Right? Uh, life has the, the power to relate and assimilate. It can relate to things outside of itself, pulls it in, assimilates it. So a cabbage can reach into the ground and get water or sunlight, whatever, and it grows. It's alive, but it's dead to the realm of play. If you give a cabbage a ball of yarn, it does nothing with it, like a cat would do with a ball of yarn. And it plays. So a cabbage is alive, but it's dead to the realm of play. It, it's dead to a different kind of life. Does this make sense? Now, the cat, though, can play and is alive at a, at a larger realm than the cabbage is alive. The, the cat is dead to the realm of literature, right? We talked about cats not quoting Shakespeare. So my, my point is there's another realm then that that cat is dead to. Now, here's my point. The point is when Jesus says he wants us to have life to the fullest, he wants to experience life at all the realms that are possible to experience life. And one of those realms that the Bible tells us we've been dead to and that in Jesus can be made alive to is this realm called spiritual, this spiritual realm. And he teaches that the kingdom of God dwells there and God helps us live that out, live in the kingdom of God. What we need to know about the kingdom of God is the form that it takes right now. That is this, when Jesus came, he announced that the kingdom of God is at hand in his death and resurrection. The Bi- I'm going to use theological words and then explain them, okay? The Bible tells us that when Jesus died and resurrected, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. That means it started. The kingdom of God is here. It has come. It is among us, right? That's what the Bible teaches. That's why Jesus can say the kingdom of God is at hand. That actually means at hand. He's not playing with you. It's, it's within reach. The kingdom of God is at hand. But then the Bible also teaches us that, that though it is here and inaugurated, it will not be fully um, consummated, is the theological word, until Christ returns. All right? So we have to live in this now and not yet right now. That the kingdom of God is here and this, this true life, this abundant life is breaking in into this false life. This life from the age to come is breaking in to a life that is fallen and full of sin and evil. And evil will oppose this, this life breaking in. It, it, it works against it. Then there's sin and de- decay and all the rest. And this life keeps breaking in and it's seeking to break in our lives. But it will never be complete until Christ returns. And he puts together, makes all things new, puts to, make things, put things back to right, right? Where he makes all things new. He doesn't make all new things. He makes all things new. He's restoring all these things. Okay, so when we talk about, when I begin to describe this abundant life and what it's made of, you need to realize it's made of these things, but it's made of these things inside of this tension, this dynamic, that it's now and not yet that we can experience aspects of it. And this is a very real problem. Look, you can take this tension of both now and not yet, and you can have an over-realized view of it. An over-realized view really exaggerates how much we think we have experienced the, the abundant life or the life of the age to come. 
Uh, and it, it can also you know, be arrogant in a sense and also lead to denial. What happens when we have an over-realized over, uh, view of how much life we can experience now that we're not honest about the brokenness of humanity, we're not honest about the, the sin that fills our own lives and the lives of other people, if we're not honest about that, listen, it can lead to the unnecessary burden of deep shame and guilt for not living up to some standard that we couldn't achieve anyway. But the second problem that begins to arise is if we, get, if we refuse to live under that guilt and shame, people begin to fake it. They begin to fake like they're better than they actually are, that they've achieved more of the abundant life, that they've experienced more of God's life than they actually have. And we don't want either one of those. We want to walk in the truth. So there's two ditches on the side of this narrow road, and one ditch is an over-realized version of it, saying we have more than we really do, and the other is an under-realized version of it, which basically then says, I'm going to lower the bar of what Jesus has called me to, right? And I'm going to inappropriately excuse things that Jesus does not excuse, so we got to live somewhere in between this. And it's, it's hard. It's moving sometimes. And we got to stay with it. But we have to be careful of both of these things or they will keep us from living in the kingdom of God. So uh, the Corinthians faced this exact problem. G Paul would tell the church in uh, 1 Corinthians, they have all manner of spiritual gifts, but they had one problem. And here was a problem. Not one. They had many, actually. Thank God. But here's a couple problems they had. One was they had power structures of this world was still holding sway over them by arguing about status over each other, by competing with each other about titles and labels, by taking each other to court and not realizing the unity of Christ. It was key they, haven't, they need to grow up in the Lord that they still, the powers of this world were still having sway over them. So when I talk about these things in a moment, we're talking about maturing, but never perfect. And I think that's really important. This teaches us five things right quick that we can look at. Number one, we must see the world and its resources, its material goods, as not merely things, but relations. That is, they're gifts from God, a God of love, whose intention is for them to be experienced by all people. The second thing is we must see the world as being tainted and deformed by sin, and we recognize how the world is broken, and especially how ungodly power has distorted the world and enthroned its distortions as natural. Make sense? All right, number three, we must see the world as a site, though, of God's indwelling presence in Jesus Christ, and that he is restoring it, but it's not complete yet. It, the, the renewal is underway, but it's incomplete. And four, we must see the world as destined for renewal, which gives us hope today and at the same time a sober awareness that the world is not yet like it should be. And the fifth thing is this awareness of the tension allows us to embrace suffering without idolizing it, mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice. It allows us to engage the world, not retreat from it, even though we have to experience the brokenness of the world. Does that make sense? All right. So let's talk about what is the content of the abundant life. Ooh, I'm just going to pause and have a drink. Cheers. All right. I believe the answer to these three questions is found in the same verse. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy. What does life look like when it's led well? The substance of a life led well is righteousness. Now, righteousness can mean justice, diakosune in Greek. It can mean justice, but um, 
it, it really, uh, Plato used it in his Republic to mean this deep sense of inner goodness, where good character comes from. It comes from this place of deep inner goodness. So when Jesus says that those who follow him, the righteousness will exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he's not saying that they'll keep the law better. He's saying the Pharisees think the righteousness is all on the outside. Those who follow me are going to have this deep inner goodness formed in them. So we might call it, in some sense, covenant faithfulness, it's particularly when it relates to God. But this is what it means. It means when there's right alignment between God and his people, and his people and God, things flourish and go well. And Paul actually changes this and helps us redefine it. In Romans 13, verse 10, he will tell us love does no wrong to its neighbor because love is the fulfilling of the law. What does it look like to live in righteousness? It looks like to live in love. Now, this is very important. What does a life being led well look like? It means it is one who's learning how to love and love well. Yes. And they're growing in that love. Love is just something that both heals um, the things affected and tainted by sin, but also overcomes the, the competition we find in the world. Love is the mark of a new heaven and new earth. And the Bible says there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You want to know why? Only love will be in a new heaven and new earth. Amen. We need faith right now. We need hope right now. We need love right now. But love is both here and will be in a new heaven and new earth. I'm not going to need faith in God when I see him clearly. Amen. I'm not going to need as much. I'm not going to need hope when I'm living in a new heaven and new earth. I'm going to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Yeah. So we need those now, but we need love both places. Yeah. That's why the greatest of these is love. Yeah. Now, if we're going to live this life of love, but in this world right now, this now and not yet, this world still tainted by sin, it means we must be prepared to have a love that suffers. Come on. And this is where, now listen, now when most people experience suffering, it's usually not because they're really loving. <laughs> it's usually because it's due to sin or the lack of love, our own sin or the sin of somebody who's trespassed against me, Right? But that if we're going to grow, we have to be prepared that it's going to be marked by suffering. There will be powers that oppose this love breaking in, this abundant life overflowing. So the flourishing life then means we must be one that's willing to lean into learning to love in the midst of our own brokenness. That's what it looks like right now. What does the abundant life look like? It means learning and leaning into love, God's love, both for us and through us, in the honest reality that I'm broken. So that means we must suffer. I'm telling you, any parent who has had to set boundaries on their child because their child is making poor decisions knows the depths of a love that suffers. But there will be a day where the sin that has affected our child will not be there. You see, that's, that's the hope that we have. But at the same time, we're learning to love in the midst of suffering. It means I must be constantly aware that I've not perfected in love. I've not laid, I'm not, I'm not made mature in love, but I'm constantly in every circumstance leaning towards how to embrace love better, how to embrace the God who loves me and let his love work through me by his spirit to other people. And if I can do that, I begin to experience more and more of this, of this abundant life right now. The very fact that we can experience God's love in deep and meaningful ways, the very fact that we can receive God's love and give God's love to others is evidence. It is a witness that this life from a, the age to come, the kingdom of God, is breaking in among us in this false and, and dysfunctional world. But at the same time, the fact that my love is imperfect and broken when I give it reminds me that the world has not yet been put to right. I got to live in both of these tensions today to have the flourishing life. So, 
one of the problems with love is this. Love, we, all, we as, as human beings have limits. We only have so much time, energy, and resource. So one of the fundamental things we have to do when it comes to love is we gotta make judgments about what we're gonna do with our time, energy, and resource. How are we going to steward our love? Now look, I'm just gonna let the cat out of the bag here for, a couple, for some people. The temptation of legalism is that it frees me from having to make all those judgments. That's what seems so appeasing about legalism. Oh, the Bible just says I don't like that person. No, it's not what it said, right? It said something completely different. But what we like is we like the legalism because it frees me from having to make an informed decision. What I'm trying to say is we learn to love. It's going to take spirit-led discerning. It's going to take wise living. It's going to take being uh, uh, connected with God's word, God himself through his spirit, God's people, learning how to, um, to lead this life of love. Because one of the big things about our love is what are we going to do with it? How do we steward it? Where do we give it? And if you think, I'm just going to give all my love to all the people, I know. Ask those closest to you because I bet they don't feel loved. Right. It's got to work it out. Okay, well, you guys get it. This is not a life skills class. We'll come back. So authentic love, last week I told you, part of the problem with the way we see the world is we don't even have a way of helping us see what's really meaningful. When we have authentic love, we experience God's love and we're growing in God's love, this actually helps us discern some of the most meaningful things that are already in our lives. So if you wanna know, am I leading life well? Here's a great question. Are you growing in your ability to love? Are you growing in your ability to steward love? Ask those closest around you, how am I doing at love? This will tell us a lot. Versus whether or not I have a new car or truck or a bigger house, like the world tells us. Well, I have some fame or some fortune. Am I growing in love? All right, the next one is peace. What does life look like? The substance of a life going well. How do I know life is going well? The apostle Paul would say, peace. When he's asked about circumstances that make up the flourishing life, he would say, it is peace. Now, here's part of the issue. When we tend to talk about peace, especially as Christians, and I don't understand it sometimes, we tend to only talk about it like it's this inner disposition, like this is external, I mean, this um, internal existential thing. I can have calmness in the midst of the storm. That's true. But do you know most of the time when the Apostle Paul uses the word peace, he actually means there's an objective reality that is peaceful? Be at peace with one another. That's not like a feeling. That's like we have to decide how we're going to do that. In the context of Romans 14, verse 17, when he talks about righteousness, peace, and joy, he's talking about not causing our brothers to stumble. So when he talks about peace, he's talking about a very real and and tangible idea of of peace-filled relationships primarily. First with God and then with each other. That we can have peace with one another. Peace in the middle of a world marked by sin. Now look, the point is when we try to have relationships with each other, if everyone, you know, anybody's been married longer than you know, an hour knows this, uh, where all relationships are impacted by sin, by our own brokenness. But through redemption, God has worked and is working in Christ to bring about peaceful relationships. And because we can first have peace with God through the spirit of God and through God's love, we now have a foundation in order to have peace with other people. So as we begin to make our home with God, we can begin to talk about and experience more peace. So let's talk a little bit about that right quick. Though this peace is never complete and it's continually resisted um, by the enemies of God, nevertheless, we can have unbroken communion with God. That's possible. 
So if you're going to ask what's a flourishing life look like for Jesus, it would probably start with not only love, but when it comes to peace, it would look like um, unbroken communion with the God of love. In other words, there's peace between me and God. You want to ask, how are you doing? Are you really experiencing life and life to the fullest? A great question would be, are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with others? Maybe a great way of saying it. So we want to have this relationship. Our communion with God by the Spirit is a foretaste of the peace that we'll experience in a new heaven and new earth. Um, And though oftentimes our circumstances in this life are not marked by what we would call peaceful, oftentimes God can step in and act on our behalf supernaturally, right? Signs and wonders, but also sometimes very ordinarily by giving us favor with people. But God can act. As we have peace with God, he can act in our circumstances. But that's not a promise that all our situations and circumstances in life will be peaceful. And that is why it's very important that peace and joy are different than love. We may not always have peace and we may not always have joy. We were commanded always to love. So this peace that we have to experience right now and this tension in this now and not yet will be a peace that... um, that we can have with God alone, yes, we can experience that, but it is to be a peace that becomes tangible in our relationships with others. And the Bible calls this reconciliation, and this is why, for Paul, one of the first places we see that new heaven and new earth, this new life breaking in in this old false life, is that there is a community of people made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people where all the things that would divide humanity have been reconciled together and made unified around Jesus Christ. And when you see people who are of different identities and different tribes coming together and worshiping God... He would say, this is a foretaste of the world, the world to come. The church is learning how to live now like the world will be ultimately. This is why the unity of the church is something so important to the Apostle Paul. It is a sign that the very sin that sought to divide us, the very powers that were at work to tear us apart, have been overcome in Jesus Christ because there is now a group of people made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people who can live together in unity and love. It bears witness to the fact that God has done something in Jesus Christ. And that's why we should take it as a very serious problem when we can't live at unity with one another. When we let our politics get in the way of our unity. But Paul also wants us to have peace with creation. That means with like material goods. What good is there to say I have this internal peace and you're starving, you have no food? Part of peace is it affects circumstances and learning how to manage those well. Nothing, Paul says, is unclean, but don't let, your, don't let what you do with your freedom cause your brother to stumble. In other words, what Paul's trying to say is part of us making peace is learning that though we are free, I'm willing to limit my freedom for the good of my brother or sister. I'm gonna, remember I asked you the question last week when it came to pleasure, pursuing pleasure. When do I put self-limits on, when do I, when do I self-limit my own pleasure for the good of other people? And Paul says, now that we, nothing is unclean, we're free. But don't use that freedom to cause your brother and sister to stumble. In other words, love is the thing that begins to limit the pleasure I put on myself for the good of another. This make sense? So let me ask you a question. Are you growing in the abundant life? Is your life truly flourishing? How are you at setting limits on your own pleasure for the good of others? In a completely different way of thinking. Most of us go, wait a minute, that has nothing to do with the flourishing life. Doesn't the flourishing life have to do with how much money I have in a savings account? Or, um, right? But let's just be honest, ask tough questions. I, I, remember I had a parent, um, 
I went home, and I don't have time for this. I went home this last weekend, my 20th high school reunion, that's how old I feel. Uh, I went home and uh, actually sat there with somebody my age who lost a child. And look, you, you can talk to somebody who is successful in every other area of life. They lose a child, the world's not right. But my point is, we have something to say about that. There is hope there. Um, as Christians. But my point is, all the things the world will tell us we need in order to have flourishing life didn't matter to this person one bit. They had all of it. But what they didn't have is peace in a relationship because that relation, that person was no longer there. So we got to just think critically about this. All right. Though we're, the true life is not always a life at peace, it is always a life lived for the sake of peace. That's what we need to be clear about. And this peace helps us discern the meaningful things going on in my li- our lives. All right, the last thing for you this morning. What does a life being led well look like? Love. What does a life going well look like? Peace. How should life feel when it's going well? Joy. Joy is the substance of a flourishing life. Joy um, is how love feels when it's at peace. Joy is how love feels when it's at peace. So true joy requires, though, an intentional object in which we are rejoicing over. And in the Bible, the chief cause for our joy is the presence of God. In the New Testament, the chief cause of our joy is the presence of God. That's why we're commanded to rejoice always, but in the Lord. I don't rejoice always because I like this stuff happening. I rejoice because though all this is happening, the God of all creation is near to me. So I can rejoice. So unceasing joy is tied to the unceasing cultivation of the awareness and response to the presence of God. If you want to create or cultivate more joy, we create a greater awareness of God's presence with us. Nobody earns the presence of God. God is here. He's with you. We we can grow in our awareness of God's presence. And there's a direct correlation between our awareness of God's presence and our joy. However, as we live a joyful life, I mean, joy will be one of the marking things we experience in a new heaven and new earth for all eternity. There will be, in a sense, always and only joy. We will be in the, un- think about the moment we get to see the, the um, unrestrained, joyful God in all of his glory. We have a hard time in thinking about God as joyful, don't we? It's like, how can he be joyful? He's got all this stuff to worry about. Right? But God, if God's not joyful, we're in trouble. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said, we're gonna, I think he's going to find, C.S. Lewis said, I will not be surprised if in a new heaven and earth we find out God was more childlike than we ever could imagine. That he was joyful and that he was full of joy. That's going to mark a new heaven and new earth, but now as we live in joy in this life, in this now and this not yet, in this world still marked by sin and pain, then there will always be this tension that joy that we experience will always and somehow be around or come with sorrow. Joy and sorrow tend to, just like love and suffering, there's also joy and sorrow. And that's why lament is a crucial and truthful practice of the kingdom of God under the present condition for us. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And in between those two commands do we find the real flourishing life right now, this tension. How do I rejoice with people when they're rejoicing, yet mourn with them? Every single joy, I, I remember one time talking with an atheist. He was a um, um, very smart, Ivy League, uh, getting his PhD in like you know, atomic biology or something like that. And, and I remember having a discussion, and I just asked him about joy. And he, this is the comment he made to me. 
uh, I, he said, my, my dad died when I was young. I lost my dad. This is him saying it. And he said, um, I know that doesn't bother me. We're all dust and he'll return to dust. It's kind of like, that, that's, that doesn't bother me. But when I think about, when I think about the good memories I have with him, the more cruel death becomes. The more he thinks about his memories with his dad, the more cruel death becomes. In this life, the more joyful our little experiences, the more cruel life seems to be. But when we have a view of hope from the age to come, then what we see in those little joyful moments is not that death is cruel. What we see in these joyful moments is that heaven is broken in. It keeps breaking in. And though it keeps breaking in, and we get to experience these little moments of beauty and innocence, like playing catch with your dad, or, or a laugh with a child, or, or these sweet moments of pure joy. I mean, joy unrestrained. When we experience those things, it's evidence that C.S. Lewis said, it's like beauty is not something that we could grab a hold of. It's like passing through, and we experience for a moment, then it goes away. That's why you could go back to that memory and try to completely uh, replicate it, and it wouldn't be the same. But then what I'm trying to say is there's this joy that marks our lives. That as we see these little moments of joy, we have hope that though we only see these little moments, these are just a little taste of what the banquet we're going to experience in a new heaven and new earth. So we, don't, we can live in the honesty and in the grief. Yes, you've lost your dad. I will mourn with you. But here's what the Bible gives us hope for that. That joy is just but a taste of what God wants us to experience forever. So that's why we have to learn to live in both joy and sorrow. And what we see is joy can become a form of resistance if we'll let it. Resisting the enemy, not in some naivete, but in a purposeful rejection, if you would, of a, of a very sinful and pessimistic world, including what goes on in our own soul. I would encourage you, when you're facing things in which you're pessimistic about, a great question is, where in this can I find joy? Where in this can I find joy? Well, I need to end, so let me land the plane. The last thing is the kingdom of God, not a matter of eating, drinking, righteousness, peace, and joy, but in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the source of the love of God, which is the root to human flourishing. Righteousness or love, if you would, is only possible because the Spirit of God can shed that love abroad in our hearts. Romans 5, 2. And so therefore, we must realize love, peace, and joy, though they're all fruit, they're all fruit of the spirits, of spirits, one spirit, multiple fruits, right? They're fruit of the spirit. Um, they're deeply ind and independently connected with each other. And it all stems from and comes from the Holy Spirit. So we must, instead of trying to focus our lives on how do I just grow in love, instead of focusing our lives on how do I grow, get more peace, Instead of focusing our lives on how do I get more joy, we focus our lives on receiving, loving, and responding appropriately to the Holy Spirit. It's in that relational dynamic, just as Jesus taught us. Follow me, right? I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep, that kind of analogy. Our goal is not to get our right life. Our goal is to stay close to the shepherd. And in the same sense here, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes with righteousness, peace, and joy. And he begins to teach us how to experience more and more of this life that we'll, we'll experience for all eternity. So I'd like to call it, this is going to seem odd to you. I worked really hard on trying to find a word that makes sense and the best I can do. And I don't know why I'm apologizing. It's my sermon, not yours. <laughs> what, I, what I think is in order if we're going to really live the, a life that flourishes, we have to figure out this spirit-led improvisation, improvising. What I mean by that is that we have to learn to be led by the Spirit to discern and to act.
And that often requires some improvising because there's no laws that cover all the things we're going to engage in and all the things we're going to encounter. Kind of like jazz music, which is filled with a lot of improvising, right? But look, you can improvise wrong. Improvising doesn't mean you get to do what you want. (laughs) Improvising means you get to creatively participate in the process. But that there are some boundaries to it. Just like if you're going to improvise with jazz and you start playing the wrong key, you mess the whole thing up. Right? You got to improvise, but you got to improvise in the right way. And in the same way, we're learning how to improvise within this vision of righteousness, peace, and joy. Improvising within the model we've been given in Jesus Christ. Improvising in light of the vision of a new heaven and new earth. We're learning how to, that's why Paul, when he lives in a world that's fallen and marked by all these divisions, all these identities that divide us, he is leaning into a world that's not marked by those identities, that it's one around Jesus Christ, and he's trying to figure out how to live into that life, but therefore he's not afraid when he's engaging the world to pick up whatever identity he needs to to help the person he's with. So if he's a slave, he's a slave. If he's with a Jew, he can be Jewish. If he's, uh, he's a Roman citizen with Rome, he can be Roman. He just picks them up and lays them down because it's not, he's improvising. Because it's not about these things, it's about a vision of unity. And he's having to engage somebody in this world that's broken and fallen and doesn't, can't see the vision yet. So he's trying to engage with them in a way they'll understand. But he's constantly improvising how to do that. That doesn't mean he's making it up. It means he's working with inside the parameters he knows to be true in a way that still facilitates love, peace, and joy. So, if we are going to have the abundant life, we have to figure out how to do this. And we're gonna be clumsy. We're gonna be as clumsy as a cat trying to learn Shakespeare. (laughs) We're gonna have to figure this out, and we need to be honest about that. So, these three things, righteousness, peace, and joy, as we lean into the Holy Spirit, will help us identify the meaningful things that are already in our lives. You already have things in your life that are deeply meaningful and can lead to a flourishing life. They're already there. The problem is we have trouble discerning them. And if we can look through the lens and invite the Holy Spirit to help us and with his help look for love, peace, and joy, you'll begin to find the things that are really meaningful. Now, there can be false joys. The Pharisees had the false righteousness. That was a self-righteousness. I'm trying to... uh, Rome had a false peace, right? Their whole... They trumpeted, if you don't know the Rome's title, but peace and security, which really meant war, <laughs> strangely enough, because what they meant is peace and security for us, but not for you. <laughs> and we're going to take what's yours so that we can have more peace and security. That's really what Rome ended up doing. That's a false peace. That's not one that we'll see in a new heaven and new earth, right? But then there is this uh, false joy when the chief priests and the um, religious elite of his day rejoiced in Jesus' crucifixion. That's what the Bible says. That's a false joy. And we need help from the Holy Spirit to discern how to live in love and in peace and in joy. So, are you cultivating a deeper and more consistent awareness of the Holy Spirit? What would you look like if you paused to think about your life in terms of flourishing on how you're doing with love, peace, and joy instead of job or career success, instead of how your kids are doing perfectly? Or instead of how you're doing in some area you think you're incompetent at, what if we looked at measuring it in love, peace, and joy and asking Jesus to help us? I want to ask the worship team to come, and I just want to, would you just stand with me? Let's just do this. Let's land this plane. Has this been helpful to you at all? I just want you to know I struggled. I got like 19 pages of notes. Just thought I can't do that, so we got to fly through this. Look. 
Would you put John 7 up there, please, that passage? This is what John 7, Jesus says in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day. Now, just look at me for one moment. This was the Feast of Booths. Um, this is where the Jews would live in this little man-made hut for almost a week in order to remind themselves of how God took care of them when they wandered through the wilderness. But on that seventh day, they called it the great day, they had a stomp down fiesta. They partied, and they knew how to party. I mean, they brought it out, and they went to town, and it's on that day, the great day of the feast, when everybody's lived in these huts, and they're, now they're partying, and they're filling themselves with pleasure. On the last day, the great day, Jesus stood up, and he cried out. He cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Next verse, please. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. River of living water. Imagine an undiluted, unstoppable river of life flowing to you and then through you. How's that for abundant? But John adds this narration. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been crucified. He stands in the middle of a world gorging themselves on pleasure. If anyone's thirsty, let him come. And he spoke this about the Holy Spirit. So this is what I want to do this morning. I'm going to ask the prayer team if you'd go to the back. We're kind of the back right hand side here. We'll have a prayer team. This is what I'd like to do. I'd like to ask you, maybe you just need someone to pray for you for a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit. That God would just fill you again. Maybe you have this river of life flowing through you, but it's kind of just dammed up with all kind of debris along the way, and you need God to just kind of blow out the debris <laughs> that life may flow again. Maybe you need to repent. I don't mean that negatively. Repentance makes room in our soul for God. Maybe we need to repent that we've made other things the end goal of our, our flourishing life. Maybe you're here and you'd like to take communion. There's communion right here in the back, or the Eucharist, the uh, Lord's Supper, right there if you want to go grab it. Maybe you're here and you want to, we're asking to invite you to worship with us. There's giving stations. You want to worship with tithing. You can do all of that as we worship. But I just want to take a minute and respond and ask you this fundamental question. If the, whole, if the Holy Spirit is the key to the abundant life and staying close to him, how you doing? How you doing with that? You might say, I don't know. Maybe somebody could help talk to you, pray with you. Maybe you're saying, I'd like to learn more. That's something the prayer team can help with as well. So I'm just going to encourage us as we worship and respond. Would you just respond as you feel led? Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. We need you to move. I, I can talk until I'm blue. I, I can't change people's hearts. So Holy Spirit, will you come? Would you heal us, move us? Let us align with you. Would you just now in your own way Again, this may be as clumsy as can be, and that's okay. Would you just make yourself available? Just say, God, if there's anything you would like to say or do in my life, I'm open to that right now. Just make it clear to me, please. And let's just see what the Holy Spirit does as we worship together. You're